So I have to start by thanking you all for the invitation, Mika and Blaine and Laurie. This is a great treat. Uh, it's my first in-person conference since, you know, who knows when. Um, also, it's a great treat to be up first at bat because you kind of get it over with and then you can really focus on the conference and everyone's, you know, ready and, um, and awake. So I'm going to start with um, a little bit of background of the paper and a set of maybe excuses, minor apologies. So um, I'm writing a book about uh, contemporary democratic theory and I am, I'm hitting a hard deadline and I am focused entirely on this book. And the premise of the book is that in the last 20 years we've really seen a very significant shift in democratic theory. So at the end of the 20th century the question was what is the best form of democracy and how do we um, advance democratization. And in the first part of the 21st century the question is how do we save democracy and what are democratic crises. And so where we used to be talking about you know, participatory versus deliberative democracy, now we're talking about democracy versus autocracy or epistocracy or meritocracy. And so I've been interested in this shift um, and also the various influences in this shift. And in the book, the two big influences, uh, intellectual influences, uh, influences are Rawls and Habermas. And so what I, I really tried to do for this paper was to kind of dig into my manuscript and extract the parts that I talked about Rawls and put them in a little thing and make a paper out of them. So it was only partially successful. So the two kind of drawbacks for this conference's papers, the first is for those of you who've read it, it's, there's a lot of democratic theory. There's more democratic theory there than there really is Rawls. Um, that's the first maybe a weakness of the paper for this conference. And the second is that the Rawls that is in this paper is a Rawls that is being presented to a different audience. That is, it's a Rawls that being presented to people who are really trying to get to know, you know the large movements of democratic theory. So I would describe it as basic in all senses of the word and not really a sophisticated Rawls for this um, group, which is full of people who really do read Rawls in a very sophisticated uh, way. The third is that this is a draft and it still is a lot of work and that's where you all come in so that you can help me um, maybe push it in more um, you know, rigorous uh, ways. Okay, so um, really the way I conceptualize the, the biggest move uh, in um, democratic theory is a move away from models um, and that is this debate about what is the best model of participatory, direct, deliberative, agonistic. So we have all these adjectives that uh, qualified democracy and people thought of them as kind of self-contained models in competition with, with each other. So I think, I think the fundamental questions of democracy have moved from what is the best model to the question of the value of democracy. Um, sometimes this is also articulated in terms of you know, what makes democracy legitimate, but I'm just going to use the term value. That is, why do we care about democracy? Why do we like democracy over other forms? What is, what is its heart and soul, kind of. And the second is that, that, that both, you see this in describing democratic theory, but also, from my point of view, I'm making the normative argument um, that it's really unhelpful to think of democratic theory as models, these sort of competing pseudo-ideologies. And instead, we should be looking at democratic theory from the point of view of you have a democratic system. The system is very complex, has many components. And there are agonistic components, deliberative components, participatory components, direct components. So rather than seeing these as competing models, I think it, it's, there's a way in which looking at de democracy as a system and looking at different um, parts is helpful. 
So in this paper, what I, um, I do is I try to connect Rawls certainly to the first move, to the value of democracy debate, um, particularly in relation to people who argue about equality being the value um, of democracy. And then in the, what was in, intended to be the second half of the paper, but it's just really the last, whatever, five pages, um, I look at uh, Rawls as an illustration of the problems uh, of looking, so you know, Rawls famously says that a well-ordered society is a deliberative democracy without specifying what that means. But using that term, a deliberative democracy implies that it's some kind of a different kind of democracy than say representative democracy. And I argue that this is not really a very helpful way of understanding what Rawls was saying and Rawls's contribution to democratic theory. Uh, and that, we, that Rawls too, in this, in this passage, he cites uh, David Held, the, the book, Models of Democracy, and he kind of thinks of deliberative democracy as a model of democracy, even though he doesn't lay it out. And so I try to argue that we have to actually rethink um, that. Okay, so um, just to go through some of the um, main points. So in the value of democracy debate in democratic theory, the kind of two distinctions between intrinsic versus instrumental value, I use the term so I know I'm full of, a room full of philosophers, so I will say that I don't use the term intrinsic in any kind of a technical way. There's this whole debate about. So I, I really just mean people who look at the procedures of democracy and say they have inherent value, even if it's not strictly you know, intrinsic. So you have the inherent value of so even if democracies might not always have the best results, that the people um, or popular processes might not always get the best policy, you still want democracy because uh, of some inherent value in the procedure. <clears throat> the two sets of arguments that are most common is the first is equality, and the second is some people um, argue that it is freedom or liberty. Um, so, so for example, Republicans like um, Philip Pettit will say it's non-domination. In the paper, I just look at the equal three equality arguments, which all are indebted to Rawls. Strictly speaking, I would say Rawls and Habermas have what's uh, a, a combined. That is, they both have a certain view of a co-originality of equality and liberty. And, and so it's not just equality. But, I, I, um, but in this paper, I just take up the, um, um, the equality side. And I look at three, um, three kind of three arguments, and the three arguments rely on three different aspects or draw on three different aspects of Rawls's philosophy. The first is egalitarian social justice, the second is reasonable pluralism or reasonable disagreement, and the third is mutual justification. So in this first one, what we see, um, and this is in some ways um, an indirect, I mean, it, it depends on what you think relational equality, its relationship to Rawls. But what you see in the history of um, egalitarianism um, is that right after a theory of justice, you see this kind of obsession with distribution. Then you see the development of these counter arguments, really influenced a lot by Elizabeth Anderson, that say, you know, it's not distribution of things, right? It's actually the status of people, it's their relations to each other. But what this argument does is says those dis people who are worried about distribution, they forgot about politics, they forgot about democracy. So you see a whole series um, of arguments, Elizabeth Anderson one, but Harry Brighouse, and, um, and now, I guess, um, Nico Kolodny, and people like that, who argue that we have to value democracy because um, it is a kind of the heart and soul of, or the articulation, the instantiation of uh, fundamental equality of persons. 
And so what happens here is that democracy then gets included in justice. It is a necessary condition um, of justice when, when, you, when you replace status and distribution. And political, political rights or political equality is not just one, more, one additional status question. It becomes the status question because political equality is articulated in constitution, so it is a public affirmation of a funda underlying fundamental moral equality. So um, it becomes both democracy is, is, is a necessary condition, but it's more than a necessary condition um, um, for justice. It also is really the only way in which, or the primary way in which uh, the public status, I mean, sorry, the, the equal status of citizens is publicly uh, acknowledged. So you get these um, two uh, ideas in this view of uh, equal influence and public aff affirmation. And this view of democracy tends to, I mean, almost all of them also endorse the idea of the fair value of voting. Um, but really, it focuses very much on the constitutional articulation of political participation um, and the kinds of values that are articulated in you know, sections 36 and 37 of a theory um, justice. So here, the question is, why do we value democracy? The answer is that it instantiates fundamental equality. The next um, views of, of um, democracy and disagreement, I use Cristiano as the example here, but actually, I also use in, in the book, I use uh, Jeremy Waldron. Jeremy Waldron, of course, is not considered to be a Rawlsian or following Rawls. But if you look at democratic theory writ large, everybody now talks about the problem of disagreement. And this is, in a sense, new if you look at the history, because it used to be, if you look at somebody like Hans Kelsen, Hans Kelsen said the problem is value relativism, right? Nobody, we can't talk about what is the common good because there is no such thing as the truth in values. And now you see an entire shift. People don't stand on relativism, skepticism, or claims about truth. They all stand on the idea of a disagreement among equals. And this shift is really impossible to imagine, even you know, without Rawls. So even someone like Jeremy Waldron, who is, of course, not a Rawlsian, um, but who has disagreement at, at the center of his view, um, he, 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 he wouldn't have that without the legacy um, um, of Rawls. So in this case, democracy is valued because it's a fair procedure when people who are free and equal reasonably disagree. This is not quite you know, Christiana because he also has a very strong notion of social justice within his view. But for what I call disagreement, um, Democrats, people who think that the procedures are, are valuable because um, they actually kind of solve a problem of disagreement, um, this is the value of democracy. And then democracy is justification, which is, of course, the closest to, um, I think, Rawls' own um, view. So here, equality moves from a relational status um, affirmed and protected in constitutions to an intersubjective respect between citizens embodied in a form of mutual justification. So mutual justification is not just status, right? Uh, mutual justification is actually a relationship between citizens as opposed to a public affirmation of a, so even though it's called relational equality, it's not intersubjective in the way that justification is. Uh, and this adds a new dimension or a new element to the democratic theory and to the argument that we value procedures um, over outcomes. And what you see here is a reversal 
So someone like Cristiano thinks, you know, deliberation is great, but it's because you have to have deliberation to, to you know, minimally get better, more informed outcomes. But it's, it's really defended instrumentally. The heart and soul of democracy are voting rights and, the, and also voting procedures. But in the justification model, there is a reversal. So voting rights are very important, but voting itself is instrumental to justification. So your model of democracy is ideally people get together and they problem solve by giving each other certain types of arguments. And then, of course, most of the times they're going to have to have some closure, they're going to have to decide, and sometimes it's going to be voting, sometimes it's going to be another method. So the voting, the, the, sorry, the, the instrument of closure becomes instrumental to the more fundamental process of justification. So this downgrades actual like elections, but it turns out you need to have some fundamental recognition of status. So equal rights are there um, in, in, the, in the form of voting rights. But actual elections and processes become instrumental to the, to the core um, of, of the process. Okay, so those are the three models that I, I, I introduce um, in the paper and in the book. I have many more kind of models, but those are the ones, the, the three ones that are the most influenced by Rawls. And then I take up the question at the end of the paper of um, what is a deliberative democracy? Um, and the, the, the famous, say, a, a well-ordered society would be a deliberative democracy. And I argue that it's the wrong question and that it has led to a lot of misunderstanding and misinterpretation of deliberative democracy. So I get the question all the time, well, you know, what would it look like a deliberative democracy? And how would it be different than a representative democracy? Um, and, and, you know, and these kinds of questions, I think, misread um, what we are talking about now in democratic theory. Um, so for, take, for example, direct democracy. People have uh, used to argue, look, we have these, these procedures of direct democracy, the referendums, their initiatives, and they somehow are in competition with or, you know, um, representative democracy, electoral democracy. But if you look around the world, first of all, re uh, referendums and initiatives and plebiscites are up, going up. And all of them, and there are, there are hundreds of different structures, and all of them are integrated within a representative system. It's, it's not really, if, to really understand the democratic system, it's really not helpful to think of direct democracy and representative democracy as being two different models in competition. Instead, you want to look at the system in the way they interact somewhat times, sometimes their intention, um, they, but they can't really be separated. And the same I argue in the book with agonism and deliberation. These are not two separate models um, of democracy. Instead, um, there are two ways of looking at various types of, of um, institutions within the system and understanding their, um, their function. So, um, and, and some of the problems that you, so, so one of the questions you might ask, because I talk a lot about models, well, what is a model? So, here's the, here's the problem with that question, is that nobody, people use the term democratic models all the time, and nobody ever de describes what is a model. Even someone like David Held in his famous book called The Models, models of Democracy doesn't really tell you what a model is. So, model is really working in our narrative about democratic um, theory in a kind of rhetorical way to think, to make us think that we are putting forward pseudo-ideologies, pseudo-kind-of-competing views, um, and this really has been uh, very unhelpful, I argue. 
Um, it's poor organizing for contemporary um, theories of democracy. That is, they just don't. There's so much going on here uh, that's so interesting that really falls through the cracks if you use a model approach. Um, it, it fails to get at interesting differences. Deliberative democracy now is the largest, most successful, I guess, paradigm of democratic theory. There is such huge variation within deliberative democracy. I, I review um, for journals. I'm like, this is deliberative democracy, so I'm, I get articles all the time. And so many people try to say, well, this is what it is that is giving the defining feature of what is deliberative democracy. And every time you can find some prominent deliberative Democrat who doesn't fall into this, it is impossible to really articulate as a full view um, of democracy. And the most successful and interesting paradigms or um, theories in democracy now um, um, become washed out um, if thought of as trying to be captured in like what is a deliberative democracy. Um, and, and again, I, it suggests ideological competition. And now we should all be Democrats. <laughs> we should, and, and, and democratic theory really is turning to what it means to be, um, to defend democracy as opposed to, as I say, autocracy. Um, technocracy, meritocracy, and epistocracy, all of these alternatives are on the rise, both in academic philosophy departments, but as well as on the ground um, in real institutional innovation. Um, um, and as I say in the, argue in the paper, I think it's particularly inept for um, deliberative democracy. Um, which instead of thinking of it as a model, we should think about um, the function role and institutional design of mutual justification. So I do um, not really argue, but suggest in the book, I do argue that this notion of mutual justification or public justification that is articulated in Rawls is the kind of starting point of all deliberative democracy um, within its variation. It is not a model of democracy. It is not a theory of democracy. Um, but it does give arguments for the value, um, a very specific type of argument for the value of democracy from which people then um, move um, to theories of democracy. So Rawls, the, so Rawls has this in, two, two kinds of influences. It's an indirect influence, theory reshaped political philosophy where equality and justice become the center of questions. Um, and this really um, has underpinned a, a lot of the value of democracy um, literature and the rapprochement of democracy and justice. And then uh, the more direct influence is this notion of public or mutual justification under conditions of reasonable disagreement between free and equal people is the starting point for most deliberative democracy theory and also actually the starting point for some other um, forms of theory uh, of democratic theory uh, as well. And, that, and with that, I will end. And I think I'm, I think I'm, I'm within my time. So I want to start by also thanking the organizers of the conference for putting this together and for the invitation to participate and to uh, get me to take my first trip since the pandemic, <laughs> pry me out of my home, get back to work, I guess. So I'm happy to be here. Uh, I think this is an especially uh, fitting place to give my talk today. On March 31st, the governor of Virginia approved the Historic Voting Rights Act of Virginia. In the press release that accompanied the announcement, the governor said, at a time when voting rights are under uh, 
under uh, attack across our country, Virginia is expanding access to the ballot box, not restricting it. And then the New York Times report, in, in the New York Times, uh, the governor is quoted as saying, our Commonwealth is creating a model for how states can provide comprehensive voter protection that strengthens democracy and the integrity of our elections. So in my talk today, which is an abridged version, version of something much longer, the paper is going to draw on insights from John Rawls to, I guess, say amen to the Voting Rights Act of Virginia. A central idea in philosopher John Rawls's theory of justice is fairness, is that basic political liberties should be afforded fair value in a just, liberal, democratic society. In this paper, I argue that an important guideline for guaranteeing the fair value of voting rights, that is, the usefulness to citizens of their right to vote, is to make it easier, not harder, to exercise this basic political liberty. <coughs> this entails that just societies with a constitutional commitment to equal protection and the value of equality more broadly have a duty to secure unencumbered access to the ballot, absent narrowly tailored <coughs> compelling state interests for restricting it. Hereafter, I'll refer to this as unencumbered access. Where there are such interests, and this is important, the burden imposed on voting must accord with the basic priority of voting rights. This argument shifts the burden of justification from liberals to present sufficient evidence of voter suppression to conservatives who are currently pushing restrictive voter ID and other laws to produce compelling evidence supporting their reasons for doing so, chief of which has been fraud prevention and deterrence, and to demonstrate that these laws are carefully crafted to remedy the alleged problem. John Rawls affirms the importance of political liberties as a normative ideal in the abstract by including them on the list of equal basic liberties along with the liberties of thought, conscious association, and those associated with the rule of law in his liberally egalitarian conception of justice's fairness. However, less abstractly, the principle of equal political liberty is also identified with the principle of equal participation within the constitutionally defined political process of a just democratic society. Rawls has been criticized for not, entirely, be, not being entirely clear about why political liberties are included on the list and for failing to offer a detailed argument for their special status and a proposal for how it can be captured institutionally. Yet there's no question that the liberty to political participation on equal terms is meant to carry the abstract normative commitment to equality modeled in the original position where parties are selecting common principles from a position of equality to the constitutional stage where they collectively participate in the highest order system of social rules for making rules by participating in the vital political process of lawmaking. Taking the Constitution to be foundational as the highest order system of rules regulating and controlling all other institutions of society's basic structure, Rawls concludes that satisfying the principle of equal participation in practice affords all persons with access to the political process common status of equal citizens. Having affirmed the importance of equality within an institutional context, 
Rawls further contends that a just constitutional democracy should endeavor to enhance the value of the equal rights of participation for all members of society. Such participation can take different forms, serving as an elective representative of the people, making financial contributions to political campaigns, participating in public debate about the issues and the candidates for office, and casting a vote for government representatives and for ballot measures. These are all ways of determining the results of the constitutionally prescribed means of making the laws that bind us and shape our lives from cradle to grave. The appeal to equal participation to ground a normative defense of voting rights trades in part on the intrinsic or non-instrumental value of equal political liberties, which are in many ways a good for citizens. As Rawls puts it, these freedoms strengthen men's sense, men's sense of their own worth, enlarge their intellectual and moral sensibilities, and lay the basis for a sense of duty and obligation upon which the stability of just institutions depends. But in addition to this, Rawls offers an instrumental justification of equal political liberties that is also germane. It proceeds as follows. Other basic liberties, as for example speech, association, and thought, which some may take to be more fundamental, are protected by the principle of equal participation and lose their value when citizens do not have meaningful opportunity to determine outcomes of the political process in an appropriate fashion. The haves, that is citizens with more income, wealth, and other resources, can leverage these resource inequalities to be better informed about issues, to more accurately assess policy proposals and how they bear on their interests, and to more effectively add ones to the political agenda that advance these interests and their conception of public welfare. All of this will result in the resource rich having disproportionate influence over lawmaking and settling social issues. It is patently unfair for the equal basic liberty to political participation to be of greater usefulness to the resource rich than to the resource challenge. While resource disparities in income and wealth may be justified and tolerated on grounds that they maximize the primary goods enjoyed by the least advantage, if indeed they do, we reject the prospect that such disparities should affect the usefulness of citizens' political liberties which explains why Rawls rightly insist upon securing their fair value. This normative imperative requires that their worth be sufficiently equal to allow all citizens a fair opportunity to influence outcomes of the political process. Specifically, specifying how exactly a just constitutional democracy might enhance the fair value of political participation is, as Rawls admits, a complex matter that goes beyond the scope of philosophy. And this is true whether we are focused on free speech or on voting, which are distinct ways of influencing political outcomes. Settling upon the necessary arrangements and regulations requires, among other things, the requisite historical experience and knowledge. But philosophy is not altogether useless for this pursuit. It can offer, endorse, and defend possibilities that seem compatible 
with the normative principle of equal participation. Rawls, as we know, was particularly interested in the adverse effects of private money and wealth disparities on equal po political participation in a private property democracy. So he proposed as a guideline for guaranteeing the fair value of political liberties and as compensating steps to offset resource disparities that make them less useful to the resource challenged, that political parties in a constitutional democracy operate as independently as possible of large concentrations of private economic interests. He also called for adequate government funding of public elections to prevent candidates from having to rely on private money and thereby risk being beholden to their private benefactors when making laws. Failure to take such steps, Will Rawls argues, not only diminish the worth of political liberty for the have-nots, thus depriving them of fair opportunity for political influence. Moreover, it will risk alienating them and facilitating their complete withdrawal from the political process due to apathy and resentment. And though he does not make this point, it can be added that a withdrawal of the resource ch challenge from the political process would also diminish the character of American democracy. To be sure, this proposal, namely the proposal to provide for adequate government funding of public elections, seems quite impractical now in view of how expensive running for office has become. Still, these are plausible suggestions for the kind of reforms needed to bring the United States more in line with the principle of equal participation, given a certain form that it might take. What about the right to vote? This is arguably the most recognizable and coveted form of democratic participation. What concrete guideline might ensure its fair value to citizens? Separating big money from politics and campaign finance reform do not directly speak to what might be done to enhance the usefulness of equal participation made possible by the exercise of this basic political liberty. One general prescription for realizing the fair value of political liberty to vote, namely unencumbered access, is to ensure that social arrangements and legal regulations governing voting should as much as possible and subject to certain constraints aim for maximal citizen participation in determining political process outcomes. Hence, a constitutional democracy committed to the principle of equal participation and to ensuring its worth to citizens should make access to the ballot easier, not harder, in the absence of compelling reasons for doing otherwise. For the United States, which is a paradigm exemplar of a constitutional democracy on paper, if not always in practice. Unencumbered access imposes a prima facie duty upon the government to take meaningful steps to ensure that all citizens, irrespective of their allotment of income and wealth and other basic goods, as for example education, are able to participate on equal terms in the democratic project of voting. This normative principle of participation imposes on society a duty to make sure that the political liberty to vote is thus substantively and not merely formally guaranteed. Of course, this principle does not require that citizens vote, nor does it entitle them to equal results at the ballot box. They may vote, and their preferred candidate may not win. 
What is at stake, however, is that the fair opportunity to have a shot at influencing political outcomes rather than having particular voting outcomes secured. Hence, fair equality of opportunity to determine the political outcomes at the ballot box necessitates that income, wealth, and education, among other basic goods, unevenly distributed across the population of citizens are neither obstacles nor facilitators in the meaningful exercise of the right to vote. In a well-ordered society where there is compliance with the principles of justice, we might be justified in restricting our philosophical attention only to the ways in which disparities in income and wealth might interact with the exercise of voting rights to generate injustice. But under less favorable conditions of the sort that have endured throughout United States history, we must also attend to the ways in which other basic goods like education, as well as features of persons such as their race and gender, might also bear on their fair opportunity to participate on equal terms in affecting the political process. Calling for the separation of money from politics, as Rawls does, and proposing restrictions on corporate speech in public elections and for campaign finance reform presumes that political mischief will result in their absence. Likewise, calling for unencumbered access to the ballot, as I do here, presumes that political mischief is at work when access is made more difficult. This is not a matter of idle and uninformed philosophical speculation. We can consider the infamous history of black voting rights in America. Historically, as Rawls notes, one of the main defects of constitutional government has been the failure to ensure the fair value of political liberty. This has unquestionably been a profound failure in America. The United States has not been well ordered. Race has long played a role directly and indirectly in determining participation in the political process through voting. Some states have historically made it excessively burdensome for black Americans to vote. For example, after the Civil War, many more blacks than whites were illiterate. And some southern states exploited this to negate their fair value of black voting rights. For example, in 1882, the South Carolina General Assembly adopted an eight-box ballot law. Voters were required to put the correct ballot in each of eight boxes, one for each office up for election. The boxes were then continuously shuffled so that election officials could not assist illiterate voters. This indirect literacy test, which exploited racial disparities in education to diminish the worth of blacks' voting rights was a precursor to more direct ones like requiring citizens to read or recite a section of the Constitution before they could register to vote. Such tests were among the many cunning ways some states curtailed the, fa curtailed the fair value of black citizens to influence the political process and to influence democratic governance on equal terms with whites. Other methods included poll taxes, moral character standards, and property requirements. At the same time, some critics complained that each method had the shortcoming of targeting poor and illiterate whites and not just blacks. So in response, states such as Oklahoma, Louisiana, Virginia, and Georgia addressed this complication with grandfather clauses, 
that deem citizens qualified to vote only if they, their father or grandfather, were eligible to vote before 1866. It is no surprise that during these times and long after them, substantial racial disparities in political influence prevailed and that the basic political liberty to vote was of little or no worth to black citizens. They had a constitutionally recognized right to vote, thus their right was formally guaranteed, but their enjoyment of it was seriously constrained by social institutions and practices. Thus it was not substantively guaranteed. From the post-Reconstruction period well into the 20th century, Southern states, sometimes without but mostly with the support of courts, found crafty ways to diminish the worth of black, the black vote in local, state, and federal elections. Hence, it is uncontroversial that states have used all kinds of devices with the intent and effect of imposing barriers to voting to deprive black citizens of their formal liberty to vote, along with a fair opportunity to influence the outcome of the political process. The richness of our historical experience in the United States and our knowledge of non-ideal circumstances where voting rights have not been guaranteed, their usefulness for blacks, places philosophical speculation about what it would take to guarantee the fair value of voting rights on firmer footing. Given the historical record of mischief and the intrinsic and instrumental importance of the right to vote, unencumbered access is an attractive default position. Although allowing for maximal citizen participation in the political process is the goal of unencumbered access, there are important constitutional and practical considerations that justify qualifying the right to vote. Mm -hmm. Fundamental rights have a special status in US constitutional law. Regulations that impose burdens on them generally trigger strict judicial scrutiny. To withstand this exacting scrutiny, a law must serve a compelling state interest and must be narrowly tailored or required to advance this purpose. It should come as no surprise that Supreme Court justices often disagree over the relative historical importance of liberty interests in the United States and so over which liberties constitute fundamental rights. Perhaps no area of law makes this clearer than the court's voting rights jurisprudence. Here the most telling case is Crawford versus Marion County Election Board, in which the Supreme Court in a plurality decision affirmed the Seventh Circuit Court decision not to apply heightened scrutiny to an Indiana law requiring voters to present government-issued photo identification at the polls. Three justices in the plurality, Stevens, Roberts, and Kennedy, called for a sliding scale balance approach in which burdens on the right to vote are balanced against the state, state interests so that the stronger the burden, the stronger the interest must be, and the weaker the burden, the less compelling the interest must be. Three justices, Scalia, Thomas, and Alito, defended a threshold analysis in which only severe burdens on the right to vote warrant strict scrutiny, that is, ones that go beyond the merely inconvenient. And in their dissenting opinions, Justice Souter and Ginsburg recognized the right to vote as fundamental, but denied that the burden imposed had to be severe in arguing that the onus was on Indiana to show that its voter ID statute could survive heightened scrutiny. Hence, the court has yet to speak with a unanimous or even a majority voice on whether and when laws burdening the right to vote merit strict scrutiny. 
Given the court's widely divergent opinions on whether and when government burdens on the right to vote require strict scrutiny, its status as a constitutionally protected fundamental right remains ambiguous. Still, even if it is fundamental, it is certainly not an absolute right. According to the United States Constitution, certain state interests can warrant imposing burdens on it. The Tenth Amendment reserves certain powers regarding political participation to the states. In addition to settling the conditions under which the right to vote may be exercised, the qualifications of political representatives and how they are chosen, individual states also have a primary responsibility for determining congressional districts. To be sure, guaranteeing the fair value of equal political participation rights is not meant to contravene these broad powers. Indeed, as Rawls puts it, there may be qualifications of age, residency, and so on, which states impose on serving as an elected representative as well as on voting for one. But the ways in which states exercise this power must not impose burdens on political participation that unfairly single out citizens and that are not shared evenly by all in the normal course of life. In addition to retaining its 10th Amendment powers, states seeking to make access to the ballot harder have claimed further interests, including wanting to modernize elections, prevent non-citizen voting, improve election integrity and fairness, restore and sustain voter confidence, and increase voter turnout. However, a concern with preventing voter impersonation fraud has been the most popular justification for doing so, and voter ID laws have been the tools for realizing this goal. These laws allow resource disparities to affect the fair value of political liberty for black Americans and for many other citizens. Requiring certain forms of photo ID to vote implicates resources such as time and money, which allows the haves to leverage resource inequalities to gain easier access to the polls than the have-nots. The monetary and non-monetary burdens such laws impose on potential voters have been well documented. Estimates have been made of the numerous costs involved in procuring valid voter identification, including the cost of purchasing necessary certificates, as for example, birth and marriage certificates, travel costs to relevant agencies to procure documents, potential time away from work or additional childcare costs, as well as possible legal and notary, notary fees to get documents. While some state statutes have incorporated provisions to mitigate resource disparities, and so may be relatively more just in how they handle elections than other states, obvious measures to off offset them have been have not been universally incorporated into law. As for example, free photo ID necessary for voting, being able to acquire the ID in places that resource challenges must go on a regular basis, and requiring forms of ID that they are more likely to possess. Obviously, failure to mitigate resource disparities that impact fair opportunity to influence political outcomes at the ballot box will have similar consequences to not doing so in the cases of political speech. Thus, it is clear that the same justification for guaranteeing the fair value of political speech applies here, and that certain compensating steps are also required in this case. The net effect of these steps is to secure the fair value of voting rights by making voting easier, not harder, in accordance with unencumbered access, which is, the root, which is rooted in the principle of 
equal participation, a principle that has both intrinsic as well as instrumental value. So I'll close with this. I have argued that recognizing the fair value of the right to vote constitutes a concrete way of affirming a commitment to the ideal of equality, not merely in the abstract, but with, within the context of our participation in the political constitution, which is among the major social institutions that shape our lives on fair terms. Exercising the political liberty to vote is an avenue for participation in the political process. Society's commitment to equality is not diminished if citizens choose not to vote, nor is it diminished if they vote but their candidate does not win, unless, of course, the voting process is rigged, either by gerrymandering or vote dilution, so that some voters have a much lower chance of getting their candidate in office. However, if it takes resources like money, education, or time to exercise this basic political liberty, and these are unevenly distributed across the pool of potential voters, then the commitment to equal participation in the political process is wanting. Under such circumstances, the value of the right to vote is only meaningful, meaningfully guaranteed for citizens who have the relevant resources. To guard against making the right to vote resource dependent in ways that are deeply unfair to all citizens, regardless of race, but especially to deleterious for black citizens as a group who are more resource challenged relative to others, we should recognize a duty of unencumbered access to the ballot. So um, I'm going to put um, some of the earlier um, comments uh, in, I hope, an illuminating historical context. Uh, so it's um, increasingly common uh, to hear um, and also, I suppose, increasingly common to recognize the mistake of saying that um, Rawls published a theory of justice. So just as uh, the American mid-century liberal consensus was passing, that a theory of justice articulated and defended something like the mid-century liberal consensus, um, and in 1971, um, that consensus was uh, on its deathbed. The consensus ostensibly aimed at realizing FDR's second Bill of Rights from 1944, including rights to housing, health care, social security, education, other basic necessities including leisure, as well as restrictions on monopolies and support for farmers and labor unions, as well as Truman's Fair Deal from 1949, which promised additionally to extend political and civil rights long enjoyed by whites and men to blacks and women. For the mid-century, consensus literacy tests and poll taxes were in its crosshairs and eventually to fall uh, by the mid-60s. However, uh, for the mid-century consensus, the fundamental division within the electorate between wage labor and capital uh, was not in its crosshairs. Beyond the foregoing, the mid-century consensus embraced an increasingly powerful and active, but relative to Soviet alternatives still constrained, regulatory state secure, uh, tasked with securing public goods, maintaining the efficiency largely through antitrust enforcement, stability through Keynesian fiscal policy, and growth of a consumer-driven capitalist market economy, and maintaining a durable detente between organized capital and organized labor. While it embraced significant estate 
and inheritance taxes. It did so primarily for the purpose of raising revenues for government, not for the purpose of preventing increasingly concentrated and unequal intergenerational capital accumulations. Unsurprisingly then, when later, after the 70s, um, the movement on the new right for smaller government emerged, um, estate and inheritance taxes were an easy mark. The content of the so-called mid-century consensus that many read Rawls as articulating and defending was that of an ideal liberal capitalist welfare state with formally democratic political institutions and processes. Of course, we know that Rawls eventually makes it clear that that wasn't his vision. For almost three decades after World War II, the story goes, there was steady progress towards realizing this ideal, but then about the time that TJ was published, the consensus began to fall apart. Causes, alleged causes, uh, include stagflation and the end of post-war economic growth, Vietnam, the rekindling of racial conflict in uh, response to the Republican Party's Southern strategy, the oil crisis, the beginning of the Cold War, or the beginning of the end of the Cold War, Watergate, and so on. But in any case, from the early 70s on, an increasingly divided and polarized politics of new right and new left seemed to have emerged and replaced the mid-century consensus. Now, there's an important sense, of course, in which Rawls does belong to the uh, mid-century consensus. And of course, TJ did reach shelves just as it broke down. But something important is missed, I think, by situating Rawls and his work in this way. Uh, for one thing, he started the work in the late 40s and early 50s um, at a time when that consensus was hardly yet crystallized. Um, I think we do better to situate Rawls and his work in the context of early 20th century American progressivism, and in particular that of Woodrow Wilson, Louis Brandeis, and eventually after his initial association with Theodore Roosevelt, Herbert Crowley. That tradition, which is the culmination of a long 19th century, and is a tradition to which Rawls belonged and actively contributed is the one I think that he hoped to advance. It's a commitment to, or a tradition committed to, democracy's progressive realization, not at the expense of Republican or liberal commitments, but as their long-term tendency, at least given favorable conditions. By reading Rawls in relation to this tradition, I think we can cast more light on his work um, and also be, avoid being drawn into the Hobson's choice, the post-early 70s Hobson's choice, of having to assign him to the new right or the new left. And indeed, uh, there are aspects of his work that I think uh, belong to both sides, um, and so that's a problematic choice to make. Now, while I think it's more illuminating to um, put Rawls's work in the context of early 20th century American progressivism, a couple of caveats uh, are in order. Um, first, uh, American progressivism in the early 20th century is an extremely diverse and multifaceted set of post-Reconstruction reform movements. Um, and uh, while Wilson, Brandeis, and Crowley represent an important thread and one with which I think Rawls is aligned, um, they're just one thread. Um, and second, while I think it is illuminating to see Rawls in relationship to that thread, um, I don't want to overstate the case. Um, Wilson, for example, embraced an organic Hegelian, Darwinian conception of society and the state in which the um, inevitable interdependencies between citizens constituted a kind of organism, um, and that's a view that Rawls does not share, uh, and indeed <coughs> replaces that um, with the 
essentially mid-century idea of, of those relations as cons constitutive of a game, um, which of course also both of those views reject the earlier so-called founder's idea that those relationships constituted a kind of mechanism, Newtonian mechanism. And for another, um, typically the um, progressives, uh, Wilson, Brandeis, uh, and Crowley, but each to a different degree, uh, tended to assign um, something less than the kind of lexical priority to a list of basic liberties that Rawls assigns to them, and that indeed, I think, expresses something uh, informed by World War II and the mid-century liberal, cons uh, liberal consensus. Now, the United States was founded as a representative federal republic, not a democracy, uh, but democratic aspirations were not foreign to its founders, and here Jefferson stands out. Um, and what's noteworthy is that Jefferson recognized that democratic citizenship requires a kind of independence, or at least symmetrical interdependence, that is incompatible with both chattel and so-called wage slavery. It required, over time, a constant redivision and recirculation of productive property in all its forms so that citizens would remain, over time and for a complete life, symmetrically situated, more or less, and so adequately independent with respect to um, a background of structural interdependencies between wage labor and capital. And indeed, the Western frontier provided Americans Jefferson thought with a way to approximate this condition. Um, and so um, the uh, Louisiana Purchase uh, was an important undertaking in that respect for Jefferson and helped clear the way for the democratic spirit that Tocqueville observed just about the time Jefferson passed away uh, as spreading across America. Now, as we know, of course, it took the Civil War and the Reconstruction Amendments to eliminate chattel slavery from the United States. However, Lincoln understood, like Jefferson, that democratic self-governance, governance, government of, by, and for the people, required the elimination of both chattel and wage slavery, so-called wage slavery. Neither could arise nor last in any context within which there remains always, that is, democracy could not neither arise nor uh, last in any context within which there remains always a class of citizens cut off from productive resources so as to be more or less permanently asymmetrically vulnerable to unavoidable structural interdependencies or what we might call today uh, the threat advantage enjoyed by capital. An economy organized around capital and wage labor then had to be squared with symmetrical interdependencies and thus the mutual independence of citizens that democracy requires. Now, of course, at the end of Reconstruction, uh, the Western frontier had not yet closed, uh, and we tend to forget that even before the Civil War, radical Republicans passing the Homestead Act and um, land-grant institutions and so on had already endeavored to take steps in a Jeffersonian, Lincolnian fashion uh, to fulfill the constitutive requirements of citizenship. Um, and uh, after um, Lincoln, the hope was that the Western frontier would at least still keep the democratic spirit alive. Now, of course, Reconstruction uh, came to um, an end before delivering on its promise. And over the latter half of the 19th century, the American economy was transformed. Small-scale farming and manufacturing oriented to regional consumption was displaced by large-scale industrialized factory production and so on. And outside, the South cities grew rapidly, fueled by capital investment, 
in industry and substantial flows of inexpensive Southern black and immigrant labor. All manner of new social pathologies, especially in cities, spread across America. And even before the Western frontier had closed then at the end of the century, typically 1896 is the date given, uh, observant Americans had read the writing on the wall. The muckraking journalist Henry Demarest Lloyd observed as early as 1879 that the constitutional era for which Jefferson wrote is nearing its end. New departures need a new political philosophy. Over the final two decades of the 19th century, this is the context in which reform movements emerged, Western populist, farm labor, social gospel, anti-corruption, and so on. And this was a period of substantial experimentation at the level of states and municipalities. State constitutions were amended, the referendum um, and, and direct initiative were introduced in many places, and so on. At the national level, at the 20th century, uh, the 20th century began with Teddy Roosevelt's two terms as a reformer president. Now, Roosevelt re recognized that many of the country's new pathologies grew out of a mismatch between post -reconstruction in the post-Reconstruction institutional and legal order and the large corporations, trust banks, and monopolies that had emerged within it. And though he lacked the new political philosophy that Demarest Lloyd had called for, he at least had a plan. Convinced that large corporations, trust banks, and monopolies had emerged because they were efficient, he, Roosevelt saw no reason to eliminate them. His plan was to subordinate them to a federal government and especially an executive branch and a professionalized civil service with the regulatory authority and power to keep them in check. In 1909, um, just after uh, Roosevelt's two terms, a then unknown Herbert Crowley, who studied at Harvard with Josiah Royce, uh, published The Promise of American Life. In a spirit that Roosevelt found more than congenial, it argued that the time had come for Americans to so-called embrace Hamiltonian means, including a strong national executive able to catalyze, express, and execute public opinion to their Jeffersonian democratic aspirations. The promise of American life was that of democratic <clears throat> citizenship, of independent citizens, self-governing, within a, a liberal nationalism oriented to peace, pluralism, and prosperity. And of course, that's become um, part of a progressive sort of framework since. When in 1912, dissatisfied with Taft, his successor, Roosevelt ran as the progressive Bull Moose candidate for a third term, he did so under the slogan taken from Crowley's promise, a new nationalism. By 1912, Americans were increasingly aware that they were engaging with the sort of fundamental political questions that Demarest Lloyd had um, called to their attention. Indeed, addressing the New York Bar Association in 1912, this is the year Wilson uh, uh, runs and is elected president, Elihu Root, the prominent Republican attorney and a past cabinet member in Teddy Roosevelt's administration, confirmed Demarest's prediction that the time had now come, um, that the Western frontier had closed and the Constitution um, was no longer adequate to the aims of Jeffersonian democracy and that Americans required a new political philosophy. In 1912, Woodrow Wilson run, uh, won, uh, running against Taft and Debs, on a campaign slogan of a new freedom. Wilson and his close ally, Louis Brandeis, thought that the large corporations, trusts, banks, and monopolies had arisen not because they were 
economically efficient, but rather because they were favored by new liability rules, new forms of finance, and so on. Rather than growing the regulatory power and authority of the federal government, especially the executive branch, to match and subordinate organized capital and perhaps organized labor as well, Wilson proposed in traditional Jeffersonian fashion to break up the large corporations, trust banks, and monopolies and to support state and municipal reforms in order to restore competitive local and regional markets more congenial to democratic citizenship, to the independence of citizens. Initially, Crowley kept his distance, suspecting that Wilson was more conservative than progressive. But early in Wilson's presidency, Crowley found himself encouraged. In 1913, Americans ratified two progressive amendments, permitting a national income tax and the direct election of the Senate. And Wilson took important <coughs> steps to improve federal regulatory capacity. Crowley set, him the, set himself the task, then, of articulating a new political philosophy for the one for which Demarest and more recently Root had called and that might inform Wilson going forward. And when war broke out in Europe in 1914, Crowley became especially optimistic that um, the time might be right for Wilson to embrace um, a more Hamiltonian approach to Jeffersonian ends and emerge as a gen gen uh, genuine progressive. And in that year, late in the year, he published Progressive Democracy. And in it, he recast his call in The Promise of American Life for a strong national executive um, as a progressive, or a stage in the progressive realization of American democracy. So there's a retreat from the uh, emphasis on a strong executive catalyzing, expressing, and executing public opinion. Three themes of progressive democracy, which is not much read these days, uh, bear mention. The first is the democratic idea that citizens acknowledge, democratic citizens acknowledge no public authority superior to their collective judgment as independent free equals. In fact, um, Crowley puts it in terms that are remark remarkably close to Rawls. Rawls in his uh, early work in his, the early pages of his PhD dissertation says that between democratic citizens, there are no, quote, exalted authorities to which they must bow. And those authorities include, um, you know, some sort of um, commitment to a uh, comprehensive moral, religious, philosophical doctrine then would have been thought something like natural law, metaphysically grounded, uh, but also a po the positive law of a adopted constitution, a written constitution um, itself. Now, um, Crowley recognized that the Reconstruction Amendments um, were ambiguous in a way. Abolitionists had drawn publicly on natural law and natural rights to support abolition. And Crowley recognized this as um, uh, falling short of an expression of democratic self-understandings, but on the way to them. Um, in fact, the battle of, in terms of uh, Reconstruction battle, Civil War and Reconstruction battle for Crowley is one between abolitionist commitments to natural law and Southern commitments to the exalted authority of the positive Constitution. So while Reconstruction amendments constituted a significant advance, they were but a step towards what Crowley thought by 1914 Americans had more clearly embraced, which is that neither 
natural law, nor the written constitution stands before them as an exalted authority to which they should bow. And he thought that the amendments in 1913 exemplified the development and expression of a more democratic um, people. The second theme um, to, that is apparent in progressive democracy worth uh, emphasizing is that um, Crowley, siding with Jefferson and Lincoln, uh, insists that the wage labor system as it exists, existed then and still exists today um, in the U.S. stood as an obstacle to the full realization of democracy in America. It was not enough, Crowley insisted, and this is virtually a quote, that wage earners enjoy a safety net, collective bargaining, arbitration, workplace safety, rising wages, job security, and equal chances to win the lottery to become an employer or a capitalist. Democracy required rather that all citizens be reliably able in politics independently as free equals to offer their own best judgments qua citizen, that is independent of structurally embedded or uh, asymmetric vulnerabilities structurally embedded. So while compatible with wage labor, democracy was incompatible with an economy, even a welfare state economy, as Crowley's describing it, within which a large segment, much less the bulk of the citizenry, was for its lifetime, and its successors likely in their lifetime, uh, permanently locked into wage labor. For Crowley, the solution was not to grow the state, or organized labor to match the power of capital, it was instead to continually divide and circulate productive property and to generate and disperse human capital, as Jefferson and Lincoln had both emphasized. Those working for wages had to have about as much power, again almost a direct quote, to shape the occasion and conditions of their employment over the course of their life as voters have to shape the occasion and conditions of their citizenship within a common state. In short, democratic citizenship required something like property-owning democracy within which workers had substantial influence over the occasions and conditions of their employment over their lifetime. And this had to be extended symmetrically for all. For Crowley, this was not fundamentally a matter of justice nor a matter of the welfare and well-being of citizens, though both were implicated. It was rather a material condition of their status and activity as democratic citizens. The third theme that comes out from progressive democracy worth our attention is that Crowley recognized that, um, art, and of course this is prior to the New Deal and prior to the um, soft or implicit um, constitutional amendments that unfolded during that period of heightened political activity, um, Crowley recognized that Article 5 of the Constitution um, was inadequate to a democratic people, that it may have played a role in its form uh, earlier in the Republic, liberal, liberal republic's life, but at a certain point, Article 5 um, would have to be um, amended. That's the article that governs the amendment process itself. Um, and Crowley thought that the only democratic way to amend Article 5 was through an exercise of Article 5, and so that became um, the highest priority. Um, at the time, or shortly after he published Progressive Democracy, Crowley joined with Walter Whitman, Walt, um, Walter Whitman and Walter Wheel to form the New Republic. Uh, Louis Brandeis, John Dewey, and others would all participate in that activity, and it became a clearinghouse to try to give some flesh and bones to the new political philosophy. 
Um, by the time Wilson's uh, term had ended, um, there had been a substantial loss of faith and hope amongst those at the New Republic. Um, Wilson had uh, failed to oppose um, uh, restrictions on political speech during World War I. Um, Wilson had bungled, uh, in their view, the opportunity that World War I uh, presented in terms of uh, international peace um, and had mismanaged um, the transition out of a wartime economy. And we'll come back to, just at the end, a briefly a, a remark about the, that crisis of faith. Um, but what I want to emphasize is just one feature of Rawls's work that's illuminated now, I think, by reading it in light of this early 20th century American progressivism with which Rawls's father was um, closely involved. Um, and um, this was the sort of um, atmosphere within the home of his early years. Now here, re readers typically point to the proviso that Rawls attaches to his first principle of justice uh, regarding fair value of political liberties. And Rawls's criticisms of Buckley v. Vallejo and had he um, lived longer, no doubt, to Citizens United. And of course, um, this is all correct, but I think um, there's a slight misreading here of Rawls. On Rawls's view, um, democratic citizenship requires, and so requires a constitution congenial to, property-owning democracy, or some form of liberal market socialism. Property-owning democracy constitutionally permits wage labor and capital, but not as institutionally realized by welfare state capitalism, which accepts a citizenry permanently divided between wage labor and capital. And if property-owning democracy um, is um, crucial for Rawls, um, and is that to which the fair value of political liberties attaches, um, then I think two points are worth drawing our attention to. First, um, while there are good reasons to pursue reform of campaign finance and to pursue publicly funded elections uh, within our current context, overcoming welfare state capitalism will likely require constitutional reforms that will remain even if we, and it may take constitutional effort to do this, uh, even if we get campaign finance reform and publicly funded elections. By itself, campaign finance reform and publicly funded elections will not eliminate the basic asymmetry, asymmetry of power or threat advantage that capital enjoys under welfare state capitalism. To eliminate this and move to property-owning democracy, probably we will need constitutional reforms at a deeper level, and here Article 5, as it still exists, casts a dark cloud. Now, of course, um, Rawls uh, recognizes, as Crowley would have also, that the Constitution is not what the court says it is, but rather what citizens exercising their office, or democratic citizens exercising their office, over time allow the court to say it is, and arguably, through the New Deal, um, we have successfully amended the Constitution um, in that way by allowing the court uh, to say certain things. And we might do so again. But if welfare state capitalism, at least once conjoined with campaign finance form, reform and publicly funded elections, um, were to occur, I think it may be even more difficult under that context for us to move towards property-owning democracy. There's a sense in which welfare state capitalism, given campaign finance reform 
and uh, publicly funded elections is in some sense legitimate um, and might therefore um, preclude the need for constitutional reforms. The second point I want to um, make here is that um, the fair value for political liberties for Rawls is a proviso that's necessary because within a property-owning democracy, intragenerational inequalities of wealth and income, even if you had wide dispersal of capital and so on as a property-owning democracy requires, um, would potentially threaten the democratic process. Um, but that means then that moving to property-owning democracy is, um, the is in some sense a higher priority uh, than the more immediate task of campaign finance reform and publicly funded elections. Um, now, I said I'd close with a remark um, about uh, Crowley's loss of faith. Um, th from the end of Wilson's presidency through the 20s, Crowley wrestled with the, um, and he put it in these terms, the faith in his fellow citizens that lied behind his um, commitment to the progressive realization of democracy. Um, and he, um, having lost that faith or founding it, found it um, uh, troubled, um, temporarily was uh, drawn towards the Soviet experiment, um, again towards strong executive leadership as a necessary condition of bringing about um, progress and even democratic progress and so on. As he came to the end of his life, just as the um, Depression was beginning and before FDR took office, um, Crowley returned to religion um, as um, a source for his uh, faith in his fellow citizens, but found himself unable to articulate, and this is part of his own self-confessional unpublished work called The Breach in Civilization, found himself unable to articulate a public political philosophy that might um, give expression to that faith, and noted in particular that um, he lacked a moral psychology superior to that of utilitarians, um, and that that was a crucial gap that he thought had to be filled. After his death, democracy was in retreat um, around the world. In fact, in 1934, the president of the American Political Science Association at the annual meeting of that group um, urged that Americans free themselves of the dogma of universal suffrage. It was the president of the American Political Science Association. Um, it was not until after the war um, that democratic commitments uh, in the form of a mid-century liberal consensus were restored, but at that point democracy receded uh, as the foregrounding idea and something like the welfare state and Keynesian fiscal stability and so on emerged as the dominant themes. And for that reason, I think we do well to return to that earlier 20th century, which is the end of the long 19th century, um, <clears throat> element of American politics and place Rawls in the tradition of Jefferson, Lincoln, and Crowley and the progressive realization of democracy. We have about 40 minutes for questions or so. Um, there are uh, 
there are microphones on the table, and the reason I would ask you, and for those of you who are uh, who are seated behind us, um, if if you do have questions, um, I, I'm happy to keep a cue. But if you would grab a mic, because otherwise, uh, um, uh, others who, who might watch a recording later on won't be able um, to hear us. Or I'm happy to repeat a question if you don't have one. But anyway, they're available to you. But anyway, we have some time for some questions. Um, okay, you have to give me a second, and I'll. I'll uh, keep the cue. Lori, let me start with you, but others shouldn't put your hands down yet. Uh, Anthony. Thank you very much for uh, great, uh, 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 Okay. Well, first, I want to make a suggestion. Oh, sorry, we actually have to use it. Sorry. I thought pick up from. Uh, first, <coughs> I have a suggestion, and then I have a question. When you talk about voting rights in the Reconstruction era, you don't disambiguate between men and women in a way that I think it would be helpful to do um, if I heard you right. So, you talk about disenfranchising blacks, but of course, white, uh, black women couldn't vote until 1920. So, that's just a thought that you might want to. Think about. The other is, I wonder what your view of unencumbered access would imply for responding to uh, Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow and the idea that um, refusal of voting rights to previously incarcerated persons has become a new form of institutionalized racism and that forfeiting rights to vote thus on grounds of prior criminal convictions is incompatible with racial equality or justice, and I wondered if it followed from your view that there would need to be radical reform in that area as well. Yeah, uh, I mean, on, on your suggestion, yeah, we, we, we know women got the right to vote much later. I, I just gave some historical examples of disenfranchising blacks in the voting process, but clearly I'm, I'm aware of that history that she referred to in my my work on Du Bois addresses that at great length. Um, and, and to the second thing is, yeah, amen to that. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, part of what I would say here, however, just to, you know, the, the states do have powers reserved to it under the Constitution to make decisions about uh, voting. Um, what, what, I, what I would say, though, is we have to make sure what decisions are made about voting, including decisions of the kind you just sort of pointed out, ultimately are ones that try to enable voting as opposed to inhibit it. And insofar as disenfranchising felons uh, inhibits voting, then that be something we want to take, take issue with. Um, but, but there have to be other kinds of arguments, I think, that one wants to sort of lay out for that. I, I, don't, I don't think anything I'm saying here was sort of rigged up to deal with that particular case. Uh, but obviously, I'm, you know, I, I. Yeah, I just wondered if it followed from the principle of unencumbered access, or you'd have to get into whether voting rights could ever be forfeited. Well, I think that what I'm saying is that. Uh, the, the right to vote still has to be qualified because it's not an absolute right. That, that's, the, that's the key point. It's not an absolute right. 
um, we don't think it is, right? So um, depends on how you want to think about the conditions under which you could sort of be qualified. Um, I don't know, some, some legislator might think, might want to sort of propose a, a, a law that says it depends on what kind of felon you are, right? And, and we, might, we, might, we, might be, we might want to hear more about that, maybe. Uh, so, um, yeah, I can imagine that a number of things that could go on there, but, but I do think it's clear that the right to vote is not absolute, and there's a lot of disagreement within Supreme Court jurisprudence about whether that's any, even a fundamental right, as I, as I tried to sort of suggest in, in referring to the somewhat old but, but important Crawford ruling. Thank you. I should read this cue that I have at this point. So I've got um, Tony, uh, Sabine, Larry, um, Simone, Simon, and Gina. We've got a long list. I think we'll, we'll get there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Did I have you on? The OK. Uh, oh, Gina, I've got you. So this is a, uh, I don't know, a question or suggestion for Simone, in part inspired by uh, David's paper. And it has to do with how, you th how you're thinking of what it means to be arguing for the value of democracy. Because I think when I was reading your paper, I thought it was arguing for democracy as opposed to various alternatives from sort of outside as if we're trying to choose which political system we think is the best. And I, I always thought, think of Rawls as arguing from democracy, that is arguing from within democracy. And you know he talks about doing what he calls philosophy as defense, where the idea is we um, are trying to justify our reasonable faith in the value of constitutional democracy, and we do that in part not by grounding that from some absolute point of view, but by defending against uh, possible objections to it. So um, the, way, the, the need to articulate the value of democracy on that kind of vision is, you know, in, in face of challenges. So here we are faced with various challenges to democracy and we have to be able to say why, despite those challenges, uh, we think this is a, a valuable thing to put our faith into. Um, so I didn't like, so if you were thinking of the turn in the last 20 years of democratic theory to the, we have to show that democracy is the best form of government, I wanted to suggest that's not, I think, what Rawls is doing, but if you are thinking of it as this internal thing, then I thought the Rawls' talk about philosophy as defense might be a, a useful thing for you to hook on to there. Okay, uh, I don't actually get your distinction, right? Because uh, and so the arguments, um, the arguments are motivated by, you know, why is democracy better than autocracy or, um, but, it, but it's also about, you know, our arguments that look, you know, democracies are not being able to solve this, that the uh, climate crisis, we can't deal with um, inequality, that there are all these problems we're facing. And so it's a refocusing for many um, people on some inherent values of democracy um, um, as recognizing the freedom and equality of individuals. So I, I think that argument, even though Rawls didn't maybe use it in a way to say that's why, you know, we don't want to be like China. Um, um, they, they are seem to me the same argument. 
But I did, I did actually, so, because you said it, it, it kind of was motivated by David, so I, actually, I'm going to use it, I'm going to answer your question by, by, by using my question. So, so one, one of the issues is how, how people use the term democracy. And um, so sometimes you went back and forth by using democracy as a set of social relations. We live in a democratic society versus looking at democracy as a procedure for decisions. And um, you really do, do see a movement in democratic theory away from that. I mean, it, and it also, it begins way back, you know, someone like Kelson says, look, the, the problem with looking at democracy as a set of social relations is that all of a sudden you embrace non-democratic means to get a democratic society. Strong executives, you, you, you know, imagine you have all these places that claim their democracies because they have democratic social relations, but there's no... So you see in democratic theory a, a move towards understanding democracy as a procedure for, for choosing things. It might also, like if you're Dewey or Elizabeth Anderson, require a society as a prerequisite. But democracy is a type of decision procedure. Um, and now you, you want to know why you like that decision procedure over others. Is it because it gets the best result or because there's something about the procedure itself which has value? And I think Rawls really influences the arguments now about the procedure. And the democracy as a set of social, social relations comes second. Or it, it's, it's, it's um, you can't have a democratic society without democratic procedures. And you can't argue you need the democratic society before you get the procedures, because that leads down the road of um, Figure, you know, creating a democratic society without democracy. Can I just follow up quickly? Because that, yeah. that helped me clarify the answer to your question to me, which is I actually think Rawls starts from the democratic society, not yeah. as we need to get there and so this, but if we think of ourselves this way, what are the procedures we should have? What are the institutions we should have? How should we talk to one another? Right, right. And there's no argument for why we should think of each other this way. That's just, the, so that's, that's the starting point. It's, there's no, yeah. there, it's just, if you, if you value thinking of yourself this way, this is what follows. And this is what follows as attractive, which is a dunce a reason to think of yourself this way. But there's nothing outside of that thing that's you know, grounding it in some final version of the good, I think, in Rawls. Right, right. So just, but my, my papers, <laughs> that's the problem with my paper. It's not really about Rawls, right? It's about democratic theory and the influence of Rawls in democratic theory, because um, Rawls has had a huge influence on democratic theory for people who aren't themselves like Rawlsians. Good. Um, Sabine Saruta. Hello. <laughs> I haven't spoken on one of these, I think, ever, actually. <laughs> Except for uh, one time I was doing uh, karaoke at a private law conference with, with your former colleague, uh, Kim, Kim Burzen, actually. <laughs> That's the last time. Okay. Uh, anyways, uh, this, is a, this is a question for Derek. Um, I really love the paper. I thought it was so timely, and it's so disturbing that it's controversial these days that, uh, that there should be unencumbered access to the ballot. Um, and, and your paper actually so left me wondering and interested in hearing more about what, on your view, you think voting is for. And so, and so just to give you a bit of information about what motivated the question, so, so on the kind of term, explicit terms of the paper, it seems like uh, you think that it's important uh, because it facilitates a, a certain way of influencing uh, self-governance or our law, our polity, and whatnot. But then the substantive proposal about access really seems to be about participation, right? Because you could give everyone equal access, but maybe our society is so large that each of our votes is statistically insignificant uh, when it comes to influencing the outcome. Mm -hmm. 
And so, and so just to fill these two in a little bit more to give you an idea of what, what, what might be the practical and philosophical differences between the two. Um, so if you thought that influence just matters as such, then I take it you, maybe the view is, well, in order to treat one another as equals, we have to give one another an equal opportunity to influence political outcomes. And you might think, well, well, maybe that matters because we want our laws to reflect our aggregate preferences, our aggregate views, or something like that. Um, on a participatory view, like on a participation view, it might be that you know, maybe it's not really our influence that matters, but that we're trying to implement a system of collective authority. And the way that we do that is by giving each person an equal opportunity to participate, even if, as a matter of fact, our society is so large that each of our votes is kind of statistically insignificant. Um, so I was interested in hearing kind of where you come down on this. Maybe there's a third option as well. Uh, it may be that you just think, you know, the, these, like this level of theorizing really isn't your subject, but you're really interested in the policy outcomes. But even just thinking about policy, you might think it might still matter, right? Because if it is in fact true that each of our votes is statistically insignificant, but the grounds for um, unencumbered access is influence, uh, then you kind of lose one of those grounds if our society is too big. Or maybe, or maybe the strongest arguments for unencumbered access are about local elections, but not you know, national level elections where our influence is insignificant. Um, so I'd just be interested in hearing more about these things. Um, and, yeah. and thanks Beautiful. again for the uh -huh. Thank you for that. That's a fantastic question. And uh, also gives me a chance to, to, to at least make one point about uh, uh, something that was said in Simone's paper. Um, that's a great question. Um, the, the, quick, the quick answer is that nothing that I say here really takes a position on the question of you know, what's voting for in the way that you sort of characterized it. And I think the two options you sketched are certainly things that people have defended. There are others as well. Um, but one question that I mean, I, I, I got from, we got from listening to Simone's talk is one way to put it is, how, how, does, how does democracy instantiate fundamental equality? So it's kind of like, if we take ourselves to be an egalitarian democracy, right, um, how, do we, how do we sort of instantiate that? How do we sort of, how do we flesh that out? And I'm giving an interpretation here that has a very specific answer by guaranteeing the fair value of voting rights. Right? That, that could be the way we manifest our commitment to equality. And, and then what I'm doing, because Rawls doesn't really give us a whole lot here, unless you, you're thinking about campaign finance um, or, or matters of speech, with respect to voting, I'm saying that unencumbered access is a way to manifest that commitment to equality with the appropriate sort of qualifications that come in, allowing that you've got the 10th Amendment in the constitutional democracy, which reserves some powers to the state, as I said to Lori. So I think he's, he, we're framing it at a more general level than what you gave us. Um, it's just how do you manifest this commitment to equality? Well, the default position has to be unencumbered access. Now, it could be that you think that there's some things we get when people vote. We get to know their preferences, their interests. We get to give them some authority. So you can give a number of different justifications about what you think we get. But at this general level, it's a story to be told about how we manifest, if we say we're egalitarian, how do we capture that in the context of 
a constitutional democracy. So that's sort of the level that I think I want to pitch it in this paper. Um, if I were going to take up what you said, I would actually turn to somebody like Du Bois. Um, in particular, Du Bois' essay in Of the Ruling of Men would be a good place to start, where his answer to that question would be, we have to let people vote, even though democracy may sometimes produce the wrong outcomes, because that's a way to secure the broadest measure of justice for all. So part of his argument for democracy is that you get the voices that haven't been heard in the mix, and they can bring their own particular experiences to bear, and then that might give democracy a better chance in the long run at realizing justice. Um, so that's another story that one could tell in addition to the two that you mentioned. But I think in this case, it's just fair value, guaranteeing fair value is a way to sort of instantiate that commitment to equality. Sure. Quick follow-up. Yeah. Um, I mean, so, so I guess another way to think about the, so, so I, that totally makes sense, first yeah. of all. Um, but another way to think about the question, too, is, is, is kind of just asking you for a mid-level principle that connects the high-level conception of equality to the specific kind of legal proposal. Because you might think that the, whether we're talking about influence or participation might make a difference for where we think it's most urgent to, to, to secure um, uh, access. Uh, and then where we want to, you know, uh, yes. So anyway, so, so I was just thinking it might, it might matter for, for implementation and then just, you know, if we were going to just, so if you're putting yourself in the position of a court, right, trying to justify what the, what the significance is, it might help to have the mid-level principle to connect the high-level conception of equality to, to, the, to the ballot. What do you mean by where to secure? It might help with thinking about where we want to secure access. Oh, where it's like most, most urgent, right? So if you thought if, if, if influence is the grounds, right, then the, then, then the place where, it's, where the grounds, like it, so if, if what we want to do is protect influence, right, but, but it turns out that in certain national elections, mm -hmm. no one actually has any influence individually, yeah. then that, makes a, that creates a weaker argument for creating good, good. access to the ballot at national good. level. Okay, so I don't think, I, then, then the language of influence can become tricky. I, I like to use the language, I mean, I, I think more of, in, ex, I think in expressive terms, if, if as a, if as, as a constitutional democracy with a commitment to equality, we, if we take ourselves to be that, I mean, just kind of take, take it away, uh, Tony, but if we take ourselves to be that, how do we express that commitment in the constitutional democracy with unencumbered access? So full stop, right? That, it's an expressive view about how we do that. Now, we might draw on different kinds of notions. I mean, I also like the notion of dignity here. Um, I think others who have talked about what the tragedy was in Shelby County and what the, what the thing to celebrate was in Virginia, Virginia's um, Voting Rights Act, it was a way for some people to sort of affirm the dignity of, of, of people to sort of acknowledge the importance of access to voting. So I, I use the term expressive to represent that commitment, and that's just full stop. It doesn't really... The, the, the question's down the line about, okay, so can they influence now? Can they exercise authority? Those are, just, those are just down the line. I think you've got the normative commitment up front when you say this is a way to express that commitment. Oh, so then just, it's just a tiny suggestion. Then if you want to just, it sounds like you just want to sidestep all of the issues about influence. And then so I wonder why not 
why not frame things in terms of equal opportunity to participate um, rather than equal opportunity Sorry. to influence? I, 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 I gotta jump in. So it's true that voting rights are each individual voting, you know, it's, we, we each indi as individuals have voting rights, um, but influence is systemically um, is systemically uh, uneven. So it's not that Simon Chambers as an individual or Derek as an individual is, is being, uh, it's that whole groups of people where they live, their color, their economic, um, are their influences losing. So you actually can, there's, lo there's lots of good empirical evidence um, to show that unequal access le leads to unequal um, influence, not as an individual, but as groups, as uh, who you get elected, as um, so you, you can, because the un unequal access is systemic, um, systemically enforced against groups. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, Larry. It says on, and actually it is on, so that's good. Um, all right, so I have to update the question, of course, and everything has been said already. So I want to go back. I, I, I want to explore a, the potential tension that I think Simone was getting at between um, the view of democracy as mutual justification that she thinks is Rawls influenced and the progressive derived view of democracy that um, David was emphasizing. Um, as uh, accomplishing Jeffersonian ends, perhaps with Hamiltonian means. I think that they're really, Simone was trying to get at attention there. I'm not sure, I think that tension was sort of blocked a little bit in the response to Tony by, by talking about like who the audience for the theory is, because I think there really is a question of whether um, there's sort of a conflict of values. And actually, I think Sabine's question is trying to bring that out in the context of voting. So I guess the way I would frame it is that. Simone said before that like the concept of mutual justification tends to emphasize like something like the mutual ideality of freedom and equality um, views like, like that whereas it looks like the Jeffersonian view and it is the Jeffersonian view because it's Hamiltonian means to Jeffersonian ends so the ends are prioritized it does look like independence and maybe economic independence is the primary value um, there and that seems to me a real tension and different views of the value, this is the, where the response to your question is exactly right, like different views of the value of voting would emphasize different things, that is the, the right to participate in a process of mutual justification, or whether the, the ability to express one's economic interests um, and uh, those of one's group's economic interests. Um, so it seems like there's a, there is a pretty big tension there. Um, and another way to bring it out is that in Simone's um, presentation of uh, the, there's no mention of there's lots of mention of democracy and various things but the word property never shows up at all whereas actually you make property owning democracy pretty pretty central to the meaning of what property pretty much central to the meaning of what democracy is so I was hoping everybody could speak a little bit to that tension and and why why we should support one view or the other as right in general or more Rawlsian could I, could I just start in the was a thought just prompted also by the um, interactions before. I mean, I think one helpful uh, distinction here um, is between um, the expression of um, democratic will, which is accomplished through voting mechanisms, and will formation, um, you know, this sort of standard distinction between public will formation and public will expression. 
And I take it that Rawls's view was not a view, and neither was Jefferson's or Lincoln's, a view about you know, the, the primacy of economic relationships to court or um, about social, con social democracy versus institutional political democracy. The thought was that there are material conditions that are necessary to democratic citizenship if people are to offer their own independent judgment from the office of citizens. Citizenship is an office. Uh, just in the same way that we wouldn't want judges to be beholden in their deep economic structure, you know, so on, to particular sorts of uh, economic domination or what have you, servility of a sort, we don't want wage labor to be in that position either. So I take it that Rawls's great advance is to say, not that material conditions are necessary, because people were already recognizing that in the early 20th century and even before, but rather than to add to that what you might call a grammar of public will formation, a set of principles that would regulate the competent exercise of public will formation as citizens debate with one another and so on. Now, of course, ultimately, that all has to be expressed through voting. And absolutely, that's a default position with respect to voting, universal suffrage, equal access, and so on. But that's at the end of the process, right? The process begins with the formation of a democratic will uh, through constant political debate, everything that's going on within the larger public political culture. And insofar as there's an office of citizenship being exercised, like the judge, it's got to be free of various sorts of material vulnerabilities. What do you mean by at the end of the process? I mean, if we're talking about legacies of exclusion, where women, people of color, weren't part of the process, how, how, what, what, what's the end of the process about? Right? Oh, I, yeah, I mean. So, so the people that are participating in this, this part of the process is very limited, as you know. Yeah. So, I'm not sure what the significance is of saying at the end of the process. It, it seems to me that the big job is to, is to get the process to be inclusive. Yes. So that then you could have fuller participation. And I think there was theorists, I, th I think Rawls is aware of that. I think if you read other theorists like Martin Luther King, Du Bois, and plenty of others who, who were making that point about inclusion in that process you just described. Yeah, no, I, uh, amen. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm not meaning to um, in any way suggest that both conditions aren't necessary conditions for the progressive realization of democracy. And so the, um, the inclusion has to be not just at the end of the process, but at the front end as well, at least in terms of opportunity, but also in terms of people understanding the grammar of competently engaging in that activity and so on. Um, and we, uh, we need to be moving towards uh, you know, a fuller account on both fronts. Just, uh, but you can also reverse it, right? So, so you can argue, so, so that there's a very important question of equal access to voting, but I think even more damaging is equal opportunity to run for office. So even in places outside the United States where there really is pretty good equal access to voting, um, across all democracies, it's only really rich and powerful people who um, are, are in office, right? So this is why lots and lots of people in democratic theory are saying we should actually get rid of elections, we should use um, you know, random selection because it's much fair. Okay, so on this argument then, you, you reverse it that um, it's because of the people we're electing and it's because of the procedures that we're actually reproducing um, these underlying conditions, right? Um, and so actually you gotta start with democracy and, um, and, and those procedures because you, ultimately you have to, whatever radical reforms you're gonna make in society, you gotta bring them about democratically. So um, this goes, you know, so you, back to the procedures. 
Okay, so I've got Simon, Gina, and then Christy. I think that'll get us through the through the queue. Um, thanks, everyone. Um, I'm also going to focus on Professor Darby's uh, paper. I, <clears throat> in very broad agreement um, with it, um, I have a, a kind of concern that's not something you said so much as a way that what you said could be taken. Uh, if we talk about unencumbered access to voting, um, an analogy we might think of is unencumbered access to abortion services. And we might think that formal liberty in both cases is, is not enough. We need substantive uh, ability to access both of these things. Um, but there's uh, something of a disanalogy um, between the two uh, in that um, depriving women of uh, substantive ability to access abortion services wrongs them when they want to access abortion services. Um, but the deprivation of access to voting doesn't just wrong the people whose lives are made more difficult, it wrongs people beyond them. And this goes back to, to Laurie's question about felons. If felons don't have access to voting or don't even have the right to vote, um, we might say their individual rights are violated, but we also create an unfairness that wrongs uh, everybody else who has uh, interests that might have been better represented uh, and more fairly represented if uh, felons had the right to, to vote as well. So that it, it's, accessing abortion is, is an individual activity, uh, whereas participating in an election is a collective activity and an inequality affects everyone. So the, the, the thought I had um, isn't so much that fair value should be understood as um, ensuring each person's substantive liberty to, to vote. I mean, it's that, but it's more than that. It's more akin to the avoidance of gerrymandering. So if we take uh, prohibitions on Sunday voting, my worry with that isn't only that it makes it difficult for people who would otherwise do souls to the polls uh, to vote. It does make it difficult. But my primary worry is that, not that they can't vote, but that they won't vote. That uh, it's a way of gerrymandering through a soft regulation. And at some point, regulations are going to be so soft, they're going to be like nudges, that we, we're going to say, well, there's not really much intrusion to liberty here. But they can still be profoundly unfair, and uh, undemocratic, illegitimate, simply because they're, they're a way of rigging the system. So I'm not saying that's anything you deny. Uh, my thought is that if we think about uh, the, the, the unencumbered access as the best way to think about the fair value of political liberties that may suggest an analogy with something like abortion services, but then um, um, uh, perhaps miss the, um, the fundamental element. Okay. I, I don't know about the analogy. I don't know what other people think about it, but I'm, I, I, you know, I don't. I don't want to really pursue that. I think. Um, so, so Rawls says basic political liberty should be guaranteed their fair value. But Rawls doesn't say a whole lot 
about the right to vote, right? So what I wanna do in this paper is, is just think about, like given what he does say about the fair value of political liberties, I'm, I'm sorry, about the importance of, of guaranteeing political liberty, basic political, political liberties, their fair value, how might his thinking be applied to think about voting rights? And so I'm proposing unencumbered access as a guideline <coughs> for how we go about guaranteeing the fair value of voting rights in particular. Now, what seems to me to be crucially important is acknowledging different kinds of, I mean, I, 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 you know, resource disparities. And if you think of resources broadly, time, money, um, education. So Ross has things to say about these kinds of disparities. Um, he doesn't sort of say, look, we can't have any, uh, this is a common misunderstanding. People think that you know, Rawls would be against all form of wealth inequality, but that's, that's just not, that's not the case. But I think he certainly would be against money having a role to play in how useful one's voting rights is for one. And so this paper is sort of a, a way to sort of just try to tease out these implications. Now, as I tease them out, I think we also have to acknowledge, and I think Rawls would acknowledge, right? If you're talking about other basic liberties against basic liberties, there can be trade-offs of different kinds. But if you're talking about a basic liberty versus sort of some social good, like we want to prevent fraud or we want to deter something or other, then there's going to be a different kind of reasoning involved because basic liberties take priority for Rawls. So I'm not sure kind of how I want to ultimately respond here, like I, I don't think I'm against really anything you've said. If if we, ex, you know, I, I don't want to talk so much about the analogy you drew, but like I mean, it seemed like you want to come down like gerrymandering is like the, the thing we really should worry about. But I think we we got to worry about resource disparities having this impact on the exercise of a basic political liberty. Uh, so. Totally agreeing with everything about yeah. resources. Uh, just that we wouldn't think of, if, if you had a society where you had extensive gerrymandering, but you made it absolutely easy as possible for people to vote, we might think, well, there's, there's no um, uh, encumbrance on their voting rights. Their liberty isn't infringed, but this, the game is rigged. Uh, and one of my, I guess my concern about encumbrances that we put on people's voting rights is not only that they're intrusions into liberty, but perhaps primarily, but there are, there are ways of rigging the outcome. Um, so it, it's bad if it, you made, your life is made more difficult by the fact that you uh, can't go with a church group to, to the polls on a Sunday. But uh, even if your life isn't really made more difficult, what's bad about that is that it has an effect on the outcome in the same kind of way that gerrymandering does. That's a different kind of objection, though, right? I mean, if you're, if you're thinking about 
that's a different kind of objection about why it's bad. But that doesn't really, if I want to, if, if the argument for Rawls, I think, is at a more societal level. It's like we take ourselves to be a constitutional, liberal constitutional democracy with a commitment to equality. And so, and we think that voting rights is a basic liberty. Then how do we, how do we, how do we demonstrate that? How do we express that? And so here's like a, a view about how we might express it. But we don't have the resources to sort of frame the kind of objection you're raising just on that basis alone. We have to, we, we might have to draw on other kinds of normative resources to do that. That's fine. I think that's perfectly fine. Gina? My question's also for you, Derek. Sorry to make you work so hard. Your first trip out oh, after no, the okay. long <laughs> hibernation. I'm out of hibernation now. I'm out now. <laughs> so I thought I, I thought this was such an illuminating way to think about um, why unencumbered access has priority over um, like public goods-based considerations, like um, public confidence in elections. But when I, I was wondering how much you think your disagreement with the oppositional part of your audience comes down to disagreement about an empirical premise. So it seemed like um, merely possible voter fraud, like the kind mm. we conjure up in our mind is like preventing that as like the public goods kind of thing. But then there is the, the, the cases where we do conditionalize un, unencumbered access. And it seemed like you mm. wanted to treat um, the threat, of, like a genuine threat of voter fraud as the latter kind of case where we have kind of a basic liberty right that conditional on casting our ballot, it will have the influence that it's supposed to have. And so it is a threat to the basic liberties that weigh against unencumbered access if there's a genuine threat of voter fraud. So I was just wondering when it comes to these voter fraud Good. cases, how much of your disagreement with your audience comes down to which of those two categories most voter fraud is in, whether it's like yeah. the merely possible or the genuinely possible voter good. fraud? Good, that's good, that's good. Um, yeah, so there's a part, <laughs> there's, a, there's a part of this I cut out, um, um, but I had a, I had a, um, I had a thought experiment. I don't usually do thought experiments. Um, but I had a thought experiment in here. Uh, it's not really a fully developed thought experiment because I don't do thought experiments. But So here's what I say. I say one virtue of noting that the right to vote is not absolute is that it, it takes account of the contingent possibility that social conditions necessary to, to its exercise could change in ways that require limiting this right to fit with an adequate scheme uh, to fit within an adequate scheme with other basic liberties. If, for example, social conditions change to commit in-person voter fraud with ease, then regulating limiting the right to vote, say by making it harder to vote, by imposing more checks, even moderately costly ones, against fraud might be in order for the sake of upholding one or more competing basic liberties. Of course, we have to be very clear about what these other liberties are. And the case for dramatic change in social conditions would have to be compelling enough to justify such restrictions. But insofar as the right to vote and the guarantee of its fair value has priority, we could not justify limiting this right merely 
by citing a concern with maintaining public confidence in elections. This is determining possible voter impersonation fraud or any of the public good based reasons that have been advanced so far. I mean, th I think that's right on your point, right? So this is again now what kind of trade-off we have to do when we're considering other basic rights. And so I think if that's the kind of thing we're worried about and, and, and voting fraud was very easy, then absolutely we're justified in having certain restrictions. But we got to be clear about what other rights are at issue that are forcing that. Is that answer? Yeah. Can I offer just a historical uh, note that makes some of the complexities here, both in terms of value trade-offs, but also in terms of that will formation versus will expression yeah. distinction made earlier? I was shocked to discover, um, doing some of the research that I did, that some of the um, progressive uh, efforts um, in the early 20th century that had you know, ugly racist overtones to them mm. um, included uh, restricting voting rights for blacks in the South. But a rationale, remarkably, a rationale for that was blacks were more vulnerable than any other group to being paid off by wealthy white people in the South. And if you wanted working class whites in the South to have any chance of being able to have democratic influence, you had to break that link between the small wealthy few and a black class that was, of voters that was especially vulnerable to being bought off in one, fraud in one form or another. Um, and so, you know, I think as we start to look back even at the history, we find some of these values cross-cutting and getting intermixed, whether it's between liberty and other, uh, you know, sorts of values that will be involved in voting, but also just in terms of, you know, what's going on with respect to public will formation and what are we trying to achieve. Was there empirical evidence to support that, or was that just like... It, I, I, yeah, that I don't know. I know that there were progressives who were making that claim um, as justification for that kind of a thing and trying to reconcile their broader commitments to democracy in a progressive fashion, such that this was a transitional sort of phenomenon, et cetera. I think our last question goes to Christy. Hi, uh, I enjoyed all the papers. Uh, my question is also for Derek, and I was just wondering how broadly or radically we're supposed to understand the idea of unencumbered access. You mainly talked about the impermissibility of laws that would pose impose unfair burdens on groups or individuals, but you also mentioned the possibility of rights enabling policies, like maybe aggressive government run voter registration campaigns or something like that. But then when I looked back uh, in the text about how you described the idea of unencumbered access, I thought maybe it could be much more radical than that because you describe it, uh, the short version is, unencumbered access imposes a duty on the government to take meaningful steps to make sure that everyone's able to participate on equal terms in the democratic project of voting. That could have radical implications for schooling and all sorts of things, but you didn't really bring that out here. So I thought it would be interesting if you could say a bit more about how radical the proposal is. Yeah, I love that question. That's a good place to end the session on too. So, so a long time ago, you know, I, you know, I did, I did my when I was in graduate school. I, I went to the University of Pittsburgh and and had a dissertation supervisor that just was a pain in my ass, frankly. I mean, just could couldn't get away with anything. 
And so I think I, that scarred me for life. And so basically the way it scarred me is that I don't, I don't make any claims that my arguments don't get me to at the moment. <laughs> and however, I'm with you 100% that what I like to do is, is extend this in a more radical way. But I think it's going to take more, more work to get all the assumptions and, and the reasoning I need to, to do it. So I'm not in a position to deliver that right now for you. But absolutely, I want to I go there. And I've done some work in philosophy of education. So I'm particularly interested in, in some of those extensions, too, when we start thinking about education. So you're, you're rightly picking up on something that I think is latent what I have here, like expanding this in a more radical way, but right now it's just very narrowly focused on thinking about the right to vote in connection with unencumbered access. So I'm sorry I can't, you know, say say more, but I, I just don't have I don't have the resources I need to to say it in a way that I'd be happy that I've got some sufficient argument for it. Great. Well, if you'll thank, help, help me thank our panelists.